Hola, buenas noches. I'm Richard Niles, and tonight on The Arrangers, we're going south of the border down Mexico Way. Okay, actually it was all done in L.A., but we're going to investigate what might have been the biggest fluke in the history of music. Herb Alpert's Tijuana Brass might never have existed had it not been for that slightly out-of-tune second trumpet. If you were alive in the 1960s, as unfortunately I was, then you were either annoyed by or dancing to the sound of the Tijuana Brass. And though their old records are often seen today in charity shops, that's not to say that Herb Alpert isn't still enjoying a highly successful career that now includes publishing, art, theater, and would you believe, perfume, as well as his back-breaking work picking up royalty checks every morning from his music. But where did the man who presides over such an empire get his start? Can Herb Alpert remember the first time he picked up a trumpet? I was uh, eight years old, and I couldn't get a note out of it. I thought that uh, you had to blow hot air into the trumpet. But I always liked the sound of the instrument. I remember hearing you know, people that could play it. You know, my trumpet's been one of my best friends in the world. It's taught me a lot about myself and life and uh, it's brought so many great things to my life that uh, I love the trumpet, not my trumpet, the trumpet, you know, the idea because it's just a megaphone, it's just something that makes the noise. One of the things that Alpert learned from his trumpet is the sound of a good melody, a skill he transferred to the art of songwriting. Don't know much about history, don't know much biology. Don't know much about a science book Don't know much about the French I took But I do know that I love you And I know that if you love me too What a wonderful world this would be I started writing around 1955, 56. Uh, then in 57 I met Lou Adler prior to AM Records, and Lou and I wrote a bunch of songs together, and we wrote uh, a couple songs for Sam Cooke, and one song with Sam Cooke called Wonderful World, which was a big international hit, and that kind of opened the door for us. I mean, that, that was really the one catalyst that uh, had people answering our phone calls after that. You may well ask, yes, but what's this admittedly quite good-looking trumpet player doing on a program called The Arrangers? Well. Herb's was a very individual approach to arranging. He didn't sit down and write dots on manuscript paper. He certainly didn't use large orchestras. What he did was what every arranger prays for. He came up with an instantly recognizable sound, trumpets in thirds, a sound that says Herb Alpert as soon as you hear it. Brad Bigelow runs the excellent Space Age Pop website, and there are a few pages there devoted to Herb. So what of Alpert the Arranger? He does need to be credited as an arranger because certainly up through the first uh, five or six albums or so, while there may have been a number of studio musicians contributing, he does claim the arranger credits for those albums. Let's hear from some of the musicians Herb employed. 
Our Tijuana Brass Reunion brought together trombonist Bob Edmondson, bassist Pat Senator, and guitarist John Pisano. Well, Herb had an uncanny sense of what would be uh, commercially accepted. And when the projects and music was put together, he always had this in mind, you know, with good reason. I mean, they're what we call hooks, you know, in the, in the music, little things that people kind of want to hear again, and they, they kind of pull you in, you know. And he was always thinking in those terms. Just a part of the tune that is something that you'll remember. You know, it, it just sticks in your mind. You know, might be, might not be able to sing the whole melody of the tune, but you'll remember this little what they call a hook, a little, just a little phrase. It could be two bars, it could be eight bars, it could be two beats or something. But just a little something that, that puts the tune in your mind. You would say like in uh, Taste of Honey, that yeah. bass drum, the right. boom, 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 yeah. boom, yeah, exactly. would be a that's, hook. That's a, you know, that's not a melodic hook, but uh, it's still something that people really remember when they hear that uh, record. His arranging would come out of mixing uh, the tracks that he had, like maybe he want a little more trumpet here. That, in a sense, is arranging. I think, first of all, he, with his trumpet and alone, probably, worked on the way he was going to play the melody, because he was always playing the melody, and even as he added his parts. So he, I think, as Pat said, when they went in and did the rhythm tracks, he would sometimes play along right. with you, no. but but that wouldn't be, re well, if it was recorded, it would be on a separate track and most of the time not used. But he had all that worked out in advance, and I would say that was the main part of his arranging. And then he did rely on and would use things that happened spontaneously, mostly from the rhythm section. And if something he, he really liked, he said, you know, do that again or keep that in or uh, in the mix, uh, you know, punch that up. A lot of times John worked with Herb, Herb would have his trumpet, John would have his guitar and they'd sit there and he would try different things and John would put chords to it and he would either like it or not like it but that's the way a whole lot of the things that uh, became hits were yeah, established. We would, we would usually make uh, tracks uh, with a certain kind of a rhythm and certain chord changes, you know, Herb would say I like that change but why don't we leave that in so we would make a rough version of it and bring that in and actually a lot of times play it for the rhythm section so they can get an idea of the way the, the, the feel would be, you know. And I worked with her quite a bit, uh, actually when he put anything, what was about to prepare an album, that's how each tune started, we would get together and put together a certain groove, as we call it, or rhythm and uh, experiment until we got something that he liked and he said, well, yeah, let's, let's do that, okay. And then we would uh, make a, a rough version of it on a recorder there and uh, then bring that into the uh, recording studio when we had the music prepared. 
curiously enough, the, the biggest tune that I wrote, which is So What's New, I actually wrote at a traffic signal while the light was changing. I went home and put it on paper, and I brought it to Herb one day, and he loved it. And he said, wow, this is, this is going to be really big. And next thing, we recorded it, and I have about 40 records on it. Uh, I mean, 40 different artists recorded it, so it paid for a good part of this house. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if the stoplight is still there or not. Yeah, if it is, I'll buy it. <laughs> As a pop arranger myself, I'm always looking for that hook that's going to draw in the record-buying public as opposed to the musician who's usually too broke to buy them. That's where Herb Alpert struck gold with The Lonely Bull. Albert credits his original inspiration for the Tijuana sound for when the time back in uh, 1961 and early 62 when he was working on a single with uh, some acquaintances of his in L.A. and they were trying to get the sound for a tune they called The Lonely Bull and so they went down to uh, Tijuana to kind of relax and catch the bullfights there and uh, he claims that it was the sound of the the mariachi band, particularly the trumpet, which is featured prominently in, in the mariachi combos. The little trick that he uses throughout all his uh, albums is actually taping two trumpet lines, one tunes very slightly off the first one, playing in effect in unison, and that kind of slightly discordant uh, unison sound was was really the singular distinctive effect of the Tijuana brass. The idea was sparked after watching a bullfight. I was with my partner and I was very taken by the afternoon, the feeling, the colors, the the sounds that I was hearing. I wasn't familiar with mariachi music or um, the music that they kind of tagged that I borrowed from. I was going for the spirit of that afternoon and I tried to translate that to a sound. A man named Saul Lake who wrote quite a few of the hits that wound up being hits for the Brats, brought him a tune. This is before there was any Tijuana Brass. And I think that Saul had uh, named the tune Twinkle Toes or something like that. And Herb said he had it on his piano for six months. And he said when Saul Lake uh, brought it in, it was like the stride piano type thing. And uh, he just kept fooling with the tune and then he made the trip to Tijuana and went to the bullfights, he and Jerry, and got that mariachi sound, and that's when they recorded The Lonely Bull, which was the first hit, which was that tune. It became an instant hit, I mean, right out of the chute, uh, faster than anybody uh, foresaw. And that's pretty much set the style and the tone for the whole series. 
people got used to hearing that sound, you know, the, the brass sound, the trumpets and the trombone. And Herb always said, there's two things. If you're ever in trouble when you're doing an album and you can't find material, do something with a shuffle. Boom, da doon da doon da doon Or Bo Diddley. Doon, da doon doon da doon And that's a hook that you could do any tune to and it would be successful. only when that tune started creeping up the pop charts that they said, well, we better do something about this. So they uh, whipped together an album of uh, other mariachi sounding tunes uh, that they released as uh, The Lonely Bull, and that sold very well. So Alpert started working on a second album, and it was really only uh, about two years later when just by the uh, coincidence of a company called uh, Clark Teaberry Chewing Gums released an advertisement here in the U.S. for one of their gums called Cinnamon that used the tune off of uh, uh, one of his, I think it was his third album, called uh, Mexican Shuffle. And uh, it was only because people started to say, what is that tune and where could I buy that record that they came back to the fact that there were these Tijuana Brass albums. And at that point, Albert realized he had a real commercial uh, bonanza on his hands and actually went to the work of saying, well, who are, who are going to be the members of my band? He actually had to go out and recruit people to play in a band and actually then tour as a band because none of this existed until the success of uh, the Mexican Shuffle showed that there was really a lot of audience interest in hearing this music and actually seeing it perform live. Albert could easily have turned into a one-hit wonder, but he had the foresight to believe that he was onto a good thing with his mariachi sound, and so the world witnessed the birth of the Tijuana Brass. They were amazing moments for me, because uh... There was no Tijuana Brass. You know, it started with the record, The Lonely Bull, in 1962. And it wasn't until 1965 did we organize the actual Tijuana Brass. Up until that time, I was just using musicians of my choice in the studio. And it, they would vary from track to track, depending on you know, the type of uh, music I was making at that moment. It was quite extraordinary. You know, like once we started traveling, I remember it was right after I recorded the uh, Whipped Cream and Other Delights album that I did get this active traveling Tijuana Brass group together. For starters, we knew each other long before Herb uh, entered into the picture. Bob and I had worked together, and Pat and I had worked together on uh, various bands. And Herb, uh, in his group, he wanted to have top-notch musicians, he, he, you know, people that were capable of doing a lot of different styles. and. One day, Bob and I were working on a, some movie set, George Raff's story, and he started, I think he started, you told me about that, about Herb, and, and I remembered hearing the record, and I thought it was rather silly stuff, you know, and the next thing I know, Herb called me, and uh, I was kind of busy, I was almost too busy, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to uh, do this silly music, but <laughs> anyway, 
after a while he called we had a rehearsal and I realized it was uh, it was it was quite a challenge to be involved in this uh, the music and uh, this particular uh, commercial field you know the next thing I know we, we put the band together rehearsing and did a tour It wasn't as smooth as it might appear uh, looking back on it. It was, The Lonely Bull was a single record that happened in 1962, and right after that, there was kind of the door slammed in my face. We had some moderate success with the second album, but it was certainly not uh, anything like we felt with The Lonely Bull. He had good people around him. His partner, Jerry Moss, was really uh, the businessman. Herb really knew the business of putting together a pop record, but uh, Jerry knew what to do with that record, or at least learned. <laughs> he was a promotion man before, so he had that background. He was very savvy in marketing, and Herb learned from that. Well, I can tell you I don't enjoy the business side at all. I don't, a lot of it I don't understand. It's, it's so complex, and it doesn't interest me. You know, the, the idea of the thing that, you know, the actual mechanics of running a business, that doesn't interest me at all. In the beginning, when this thing was starting to blossom, you know, and they realized what they had on their hands, they went after the top people in every phase. They needed a promotion man or a marketing guy. They got, they'd find out who the best guy in the business was and offer him more money than he was getting there and, and build his dynasty with all these top executives and everybody knew how to do their thing you know and once the record company really got off the ground a lot of people that were working there came from Capitol Records people that they had known in the business before so uh, they knew what they were doing Alpert still recognized a gap in the market at a time when rock and roll was at the forefront of popular music. And what a lucrative gap it was. Constant chart toppers. The first six albums sold over 11 million copies in just three years, and the advance orders for What Now My Love topped a million copies. Those Tijuana lads from L.A. became the fourth biggest selling act, just behind The Beatles, Sinatra, and Elvis. That's one of the reasons the group made it, because the Beatles had hit in, what, 62 or something like that? Maybe a little earlier. And from what I was told, everything then was the guitars, and there were no horn sounds for a few years. And that's what opened everything up for Herb when he came, still with very simple music that was uh, comparable to what the Beatles were doing. I mean, it's chord-wise and everything like that. But the sound of the horn was a little different then. Plus, we were the only one of the only groups to ever, uh, you know, have hit records instrumentally. There were just a few in the history of music without lyrics, you know. And of course, the Beatles' whole thing was a lot to do with lyrics, you know. Plus, our audience was a wider audience. We didn't appeal to rock and roll kids that much. We were our audience would be people that look like us now, you know. Well, families <laughs> you know, across family. the board, you know. Exactly. And everything had an agenda. All his music had something. But our thing was just a happy little thing yeah. that you could walk around and market and shop to it. And, you know, it just happened to be an infectious music. It got people in a, in a good frame of mind. I, I, I don't think that Herb had in mind 
any particular thing when it started. I think what, uh, it was like a novelty sort of thing. And as Pat said, the fun, it was fun. That, that was infectious, I think. And uh, that sort of set the direction. Now, this is not complex or demanding music. Some might call it middle of the road or lightweight. So what could it possibly have to offer musicians of the caliber of the seasoned studio cats in the Tijuana Brass? For me, the uh, challenge was uh, playing uh, Zorba the Greek. <laughs> and I had to play that uh, every night. And every night, Nick Ciroli would uh, kind of play it faster. <laughs> and I could, st I could still see his... Uh, his expression, you know, <laughs> check this out, John, you know, he'd, he'd give me that smirk, you know, and, you know, but it was, uh, and it was the highlight of the show, we saved it to the last. And Bob would play a timpani role. Bob is not only a trombone, was a trombone player, but he was, he's actually still a good drummer, right, Bob? <laughs> well, <laughs> Bob would play a timpani role, and then you would hear this uh, announcer say, and now, ladies and gentlemen, Zorba the Greek, and there would be a pin spot on my uh, hands, and then I would start this thing off, and I'd turn around and see Nick smiling because he'd play it always a notch faster, you know. But this actually happened one night, believe it or not. This whole picture you could see, and we're playing in an indoor outdoor theater. And ladies and gentlemen, Zorba the Greek, tried to, you know, the role and everything, and pin spotlight. And just at that moment, a bird happened to go on the neck of my guitar, right on the fingerboard. And it was kind of, you know, I didn't have time to try to clean it off or anything, but that's one of the, that was one of the highlights. And that was, it was fun, you know. <laughs> one of the many stories about the fun that was had on tour with Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass they released some 15 chart-topping albums before disbanding in 1972 to allow Alpert to concentrate on his recording empire. After discovering many hit acts, including the Carpenters, he sold A&M records for half a billion dollars in the 90s. He's continued to record solo albums himself, and, as I mentioned earlier, he's taken to painting, and funded the first production of the Tony Award-winning play Angels in America, and he's launched a perfume called Listen, Anyway, Alpert is obviously quite a guy. I've got to know, what could possibly be his driving force? I feel strongly that to make art, music, whatever you're doing that has to do with uh, you know, some artistic endeavor, you have to let it come through you. And when it comes through you, you can't think. That has to be the first rule. If you think too much, it becomes intellectual, then it becomes an exercise, and then it's a study, and then it's uh, very calculated. But when you let art come through, you just have to take what you get. And Herb still continues to take it all the way to the bank. On next week's show, I'll still be obling fractured Espanol with the king of the mambo, Latin lover and snappy dresser, Xavier Cugat. Until then, I'd like to say muchas gracias to all the guys with mustaches and big sombreros, Brad Bigelow, John Pisano, Bob Edmondson, and Pat Senator. And I'd like to say Teodoro, my producer, Elizabeth Clark, who isn't wearing a sombrero, but keeps it in her handbag for emergencies. 
When I was down in Mexico riding with Zapata, they used to call me Bueno por Nada. But you can call me Richard Niles with a fistful of pesos trying to make a few dollars more on Radio Richard!